Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Uh, I forgot to make one announcement. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing how much we're driven by the news cycle, right? When, when something's prominent on all the channels, including our social media channels, um, there's this sense of being passionate about it. And then as soon as it's off the radar, we forget about it. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to just let you all know about is we've, um, we've been praying for, we've been talking about how we can engage with the refugee crisis, in particular what we saw in, happening in Afghanistan some weeks ago. Um, and the, the latest word is that about 1,700 uh, Afghan refugees are going to be coming to Seattle in the coming weeks, um, many more to come in the months after that. One of the most immediate needs, um, I've talked with World Relief, who, who settles most of these um, refugees in our area, one of the, the most immediate needs is temporary housing. Um, so basically, these families are coming in with nothing, nowhere to stay, no family, no friends. And so while the services are being set up and the system's often overwhelmed initially by this influx, um, they're looking for temporary housing. So this could be a a single person, it could be a a family, and they're looking for housing for one to five weeks. So if you're interested in engaging with um, that, potentially opening up your your home for a family to stay, if you have the space to do that, um, again, uh, indicate on your connection card, and we'd love to get you Uh, Connected with World Relief, there is a little bit of training that's required because they're not just going to send refugees to anybody, right? Uh, They want to make sure nobody's too weird or that the house is safe and those types of things. So they do a background check and they do some training so you know how to to welcome this family. And so if you're interested, the need's going to be overwhelming uh, in a very limited amount of time, um, but there's opportunities to engage with that. So please let us know. Um, Last week, um, Bob Chin uh, preached from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. So if you weren't here with us, this was the passage that um, that he centered us on. This passage uh, focuses on discipleship. Jesus himself was speaking, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. How often? Okay. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So Bob walked us through this verse, and you know, one of the things that's interesting about this is Jesus made this statement in a context uh, where the the culture of the Jewish people, hello, uh, were under the rule of Rome. And so when he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they must take up their cross, well, this was a Roman form of torture. So when Jesus said this, I, I, I have to imagine that the people that were following him at this point that were hanging out around him were like, hey, time out. You, you want us to do what? You want us to, to take up a form of punishment? Not only punishment, but punishment from our oppressors? And, and these same people knew that the prophecies of the Messiah, of Jesus, that, that when they would be fulfilled, that meant that the Messiah was going to save them. And they believed that he was going to save them from oppression, so this just didn't compute. If, if Jesus was doing all of these things and he was the, the long-promised Messiah and he was fulfilling all these prophecies and he's saying to follow him, we have to take this up, man, I can imagine they would have paused at the very least. And as we know, many just said, forget it. We thought you were somebody else. 
Now, Jesus tells some of them at this same point that they're going to see the kingdom of God. But I can imagine when he said that, they couldn't still get over the initial statement that he made. That to be his disciple, to be his a disciple means a learner or an apprentice under. To, to really follow him, they had to do these things. One of the things that, that stands out to me in Jesus' ministry is that the things that Jesus cares about the most in people is real transformation in their lives. Real trans, like he, he's not all about just getting a big crowd and starting a popular ministry and getting his name out there. He cares about individual transformation. And so we see this. We see uh, him, him demonstrate through miracles in people's lives that would give them an opportunity at what? A new life. Like people that were blind now can see their life is changed forever. People that were lame can now walk. Their life was changed forever. Jesus cared about their life and about it being different after an encounter with him. Jesus cared uh, about uh, people in such a way that he would have meals with them that led to transformation. One of my favorite stories is as Jesus rolls into town and there's thousands of people in the street, it's, it's like the celebrity that, that's announced his arrival. And there's, there's this one guy who's kind of short. Uh, all the short people can agree with this, right? People can, can relate to this. And, and he's not only is he short, but he's, he's also an outcast in this culture because he's a tax collector. Think like Sheriff of Nottingham, like he takes more than he should, and he has the backing of the oppressors. Like this guy is not popular. His name is Zacchaeus. But he wants to see Jesus too. He wants to see what this is all about. So he climbs a tree, and Jesus, of all the people that were gathered there, leaders and officials and religious folks, he looks up at the tree and he sees Zacchaeus and he goes, I want to have a meal at your house. And what happens in that meal is transformation. Zacchaeus goes, You know what? <laughs> I'm going to make things right. This is called repentance. He, he, he did a 180 in his life after he had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus cares about transformation. Jesus cares about it so much that he meets people where they're at. This woman at a well, the Samaritan woman, some of you know this story. She had had many husbands and she was living in an adulterous relationship currently. So she went to the well at the time of day where nobody else would interact with her because she was guilty and ashamed. And she never knew that day when she woke up that her life would be changed forever. Jesus purposely went to meet with her. And through his compassion, he gave her a calling that changed her life forever. So what Jesus is not interested in is folks that want to follow him out of selfish motives. So the word that Jesus always uses for those who really want to follow him, who really want a transformed life, is the word disciple. So continuing with what Bob shared last week, this morning I want us to wade further into the idea of what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. So we're going to skip forward five chapters uh, into another place where Jesus talks about following him and what it costs to be his disciples. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 14, verses 25. We're going to read through 35. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles right in front of you in the pews. You can quickly download one as well. Luke 14, 25 through 35. And if you're new to our church, we often like to read the Bible. And by say we, I mean you. 
you are invited to read your Bible this morning. So go ahead and and read on your own these 10 verses from Luke chapter 14, and then we're going to walk through them together and ask what it means for us today. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that it doesn't always say what we want it to say, but it says exactly what we need to hear. And that's how you operate, Lord. You love us so much that you speak to the truth to us. You guide us into righteousness. You call us into something that we could never imagine for ourselves. So, Father, as we consider what it means to be your disciple this morning, we ask by the power of your spirit, that you would transform us, Lord. This wouldn't be just another Sunday, but it would be a Sunday where we hear from you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, the Seahawks played their first game. They win their first game. Some of you weren't here on Sunday, but I'm sure you weren't watching. That wasn't because of the game. Um, But I want you to imagine with me for a moment that the Seahawks continue to win this season and that they go to the Super Bowl. And I want you to imagine that you got a ticket yourself to go see the Seahawks play in the Super Bowl. It would be pretty exciting, right? And before you go to the the Super Bowl, you hear that Seahawks fans all around the world are so excited about this game that 70% of the ticket holders for the Super Bowl are Seahawks fans. Now, that almost never happens because it costs too much to get a Seahawks Uh, to get a Super Bowl ticket. So it's usually just a mix of folks. It's just football fans and rich people. (laughs) But I want you to imagine that that's the case. You're there. 70% of the the fans in the stadium are there. It's going to be awesome. Now you go there. You go to the game, and you're expecting just a sea of blue. Everybody being wearing 12 jerseys. But it's not completely obvious because not a lot of the fans are actually wearing Seahawks gear. Clearly not 70%. But you think, well, that's okay. It's, I'm, I've been told that there's this many fans, and it's going to be an exciting game. And so the game starts, and, uh, and Russell Wilson's just clicking. He's, he's cooking, as they say. And you, you turn to a fan at, at one point during the game, and you say, man, Russell is playing an amazing game. And the fan turns next to you and goes, Russell who? And you turn to another fan, and you go, man, isn't Russell just lighting it up? And, and they look at you confused. And all of a sudden, you're like, man, do you do people not know who Russell Wilson is? I mean, this is a Super Bowl, and I thought so, most of the people here were Hawks fans. 
At, at points during the game, you look around and you see people that are wearing Seahawks jerseys. And, and they're cheering during the wrong time. Chris Carson fumbles the ball. And they cheer. And you're like, wait a second. Why are Hawks fans cheering for that? At halftime, things aren't going quite as well as you'd hope they would be. In fact, because of turnovers, the Seahawks are down big. And a bunch of fans with Seahawks gear leave the game in disgust. Now, not only is it the Super Bowl, but Russell Wilson's on the team. Do they not know that he is the comeback king? He is Mr. Fourth Quarter. Why would they leave? But you're committed, and as the game goes on, Russell does it. The Seahawks team does it. They come back, and they pull out the win in dramatic fashion. But only a fraction of the supposedly 70% of the fans are cheering their guts out at the end. Some are passed out. Some are distracted. Or they've actually started watching hockey on their phones towards the end of the game. Weird. So at the end of the game, you're thinking to yourself, clearly somebody lied to me. There is no way that 70% of those people were 12s. There's just no way. You know, I, I read in a, a study a couple weeks ago that said about 70% of the population of the United States claims to be Christians. Earlier this year, a study was done by George Barna and the Cultural Research Center that found of those 70% of people who claim to follow Jesus, only 9% of them have a biblical worldview. That is, they, they believe the Bible to be accurate and reliable, that the way they live their lives is based on the convictions of Scripture, that their understanding of God is based on Scripture. They found only 9% of the 70% actually have a worldview that lines up with what's in the Bible. Now, a majority of, the self, uh, of these self-identifying Christians surveyed believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's the just creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. Majority still believe that when asked. But of that percentage, 66% think that all religious faiths are of equal value. So when Jesus says he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, they would disagree with that. 58% think that if a person is good enough or does good enough things, they can earn their way into heaven. 57% of self-identifying Christians believe in karma. As the results of the survey end up showing, a huge percentage of self-identified Christians hold beliefs and values that are in no way connected to the Christian faith or to the Bible. So that appears to me to mean that 226 million Jesus fans in our culture really don't know much about Jesus and the actual teachings of his word. 70% wear a Jesus jersey, but that's about the sum total of their faith. So clearly, there is a difference between believing in Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. 
So, see, the, the people that showed up to Jesus' events, they believed in him because they could see him. They liked what he was doing, but far fewer were willing to follow him, to apprentice under him. And before we buy into some narrative that this 70% of America that really aren't following Jesus is a recent thing, we just need to zoom out a little bit in our own American history. That people that have claimed to follow Jesus have owned people, chattel slavery in our country. They have taken children from others' homes and re-educated them in our country. This is not a just, oh, because we're in a postmodern culture. This has been the story of people who claim to follow Christ since Jesus was here. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? How do we know if our Christian faith is genuine? Where do we start in examining ourselves? Well, I think we ought to start by asking if we consider ourselves disciples and what the implications of that really mean. As I mentioned earlier, disciple means a learner, or I think a better picture of it is an apprentice. You are somebody that is studying under Jesus, that is learning his ways, that is all of the things you can observe and hear and learn from him, you are trying to apply those things in your own life. Now, a survey can reveal a lack of knowledge about what the Bible teaches, and what our Christian faith is built on. But Jesus' words are the ones that get us to the heart of the matter. You've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. And this speaks largely to the truth, it is true, that your physical health is largely affected by what you consume on a daily basis. But what about our spiritual, emotional, and mental health? I think with that we can say, you are what you love. You are what you love. The things that you give your affection to, that you are motivated by, those are what affect the course of your life. So you are what you love. But what this survey revealed of our culture is that many people don't actually love what they think they love. So let's get into it. This is where Jesus starts. You are what you love. What does he say at the very beginning of the passage we just read? It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, we'll get to the word hate in just a minute because that's a jarring one for us. But first, we have to observe, right, what's happening here. Large crowds are following Jesus. And Jesus does this quite a bit in his ministry as, as he begins that people are following him for the, the wrong motives because nobody wants fake relationships. Jesus doesn't want an entourage that is interested in the spectacle that is created around him. He wants a people a people that are ready to change the world. And so in order for this to happen, they first have to change their heart. They need a transformation that happens. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to divide the crowd right now, this large crowd. And in what he just said, he's going to give two conditions for being his apprentice, for being his disciple. 
The first one is love everything less than him. And the first one is put God's, the second one is put God's will above yourself. Love everything less than him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So let's address the word hate right now. I remember reading this as a kid thinking, hold up, time out. I love my parents. (laughs) One of my brothers, not so much, but my parents, I love them. Now, we have to understand that this phrase that Jesus used is a, a common exaggeration in the Middle Eastern world. So it's a, there's a cultural framework of understanding here. Jesus is not contradicting the scriptures that say we are to love God and to love people. Um, he's not contradicting himself, essentially, in this. But what he is saying is that you have to love these things less than me. Less than me. And to love everything less than Jesus doesn't mean we don't love people. So don't do this because I've seen people twist Jesus' words. Don't make stuff up. The Pharisees were really good about that. They would take the laws of of God and they would twist them to their own advantage. Well, I would would help out my family, but I got to give to God first. They would do stuff like that. Jesus is not saying that. But what he is saying is, if you really want to follow me, I have to be the priority. Now, in the first century church, following Jesus would often mean, or sometimes mean, that you are going to lose out on the privileges of your family. Because to reject the the pagan ideology of your family and to follow Jesus meant oftentimes that you're going to be cut off from your family. And this is still the case Today, for many folks, uh, if you grew up Muslim and you become a Christian convert, you will be cut off from your family. It's just a given. They have to cut you off. If you grew up in Asia and your family um, sets up little altars in your, in your house to worship your ancestors, and you, you realize in your own convictions, I can't do that because I can only worship Jesus, then your family's going to be offended by that and they'll cut you off. I actually had coffee with a woman once who became a Christian, and because she wouldn't engage with ancestor worship anymore, she lost her inheritance. And she said, my inheritance was more than I could ever earn in my lifetime. But Jesus is better. So the call to put Jesus first is going to look differently depending on your culture. I do not want you texting your parents right now saying, peace out. So it's going to look different depending on your culture and depending on the nation you live. But the challenge here is universal for you and me today. Jesus is number one. In some cases, following Jesus is actually going to make you love your family more. It's actually going to make you make a commitment that you should have made a long time ago in how you love them. So today, as we follow Jesus, what does our apprenticeship with him look like? The the reality is that following Jesus, discipleship is a process. It's messy, and it's full of mistakes. And when churches relegate discipleship to like, well, you need to read, just read the Bible once through the year and go to this Sunday school class. Like, that's not discipleship. That can be a part of your understanding who Jesus is, but that in itself is not discipleship. Discipleship is this holistic, everything I have and do and is oriented toward Jesus. Which is why he says, not just to the family, hate them, but even your own life, your desires, your plans need to be 
subjected to God's plans. Now, discipleship is a process, and it's messy, and we see this play out in the ministry of Jesus. As he had people following him, and he had this 12 that were locked in. They, they weren't going to go anywhere. They were committed. They were separate from the large crowd. But even they, at times, didn't quite understand the ways of Jesus. There was one point where Jesus is teaching, and these kids are hanging out with him, and the disciples are like, keep the kids away. And Jesus is like, time out. What are you doing? Kids belong to the kingdom of God. So they had to make a mistake, Right? And Jesus loved them, and he corrected them. Uh, there's this other point where Jesus sends his, his disciples out, and he says, hey, you know what to do. Go deal with, de with demonic oppression in people's lives. Go heal people. Go do the things that you've been seeing me do. That's part of apprenticeship. And they come back, and they say, we couldn't do it. And Jesus said, that's okay. This is what you do next time. Like This is part of the discipleship process of Jesus. One of my favorite illustrations of incomplete discipleship is when the disciples are on a boat and they see Jesus walking across the water and Peter goes, hey, if that's you, Jesus, tell me to walk across the water. And Jesus is like, it's me, walk across the water. And Peter starts doing it, but he only gets halfway. He starts to sink. But who's there to help him up, to make sure he doesn't drown? Jesus is. So our discipleship is a, a process, but it starts with the heart. What are we oriented to? And that's what Jesus is pushing at here. The starting point of our discipleship isn't about knowledge, but about desire. And this is where the imagery of the cross comes in, and it's a bit confrontational. God's will above my will. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the interesting thing to note here, that says 9, 26, and 27. It should be 14, just so nobody calls me the heretic later. Um, the interesting thing here is Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. His disciples don't know what is going to play out in the months ahead. So Jesus is foreshadowing something. He's foreshadowing what he's going to do for them. So he's saying, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to go the places that I go. You're going to have to take what you imagine for your life, and you're going to have to put it under my plan and my will. This is one of the hardest parts of discipleship. Because we all have desires, and these desires are fed by all sorts of things. They're, they're fed by what we see around us, what we've encountered when we've grown up, what's elevated in our society. We all have these visions and these dreams and these desires for our lives. But in order for us to really live a transformed life, in order to apprentice under Jesus, we have to take those things. We have to say, Lord, not my will, but yours. I'll follow you to the cross if I need to. In my understanding of Jesus, I often minimize his humanity. But we believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, not 50% of one or the other. So when he was living in this earth, he experienced the same things that we experience. I can imagine when he was growing up, right? He had younger brothers and sisters, and they were probably really annoying to him. He had hunger pains that he had to deal with. He had social issues that he had to wade through. Like he felt things. You know what? I am really certain that Jesus has a good sense of humor. 
Because God has a good sense of humor. And he made some weird animals, right? A platypus? What is that? Like, I'm certain that when Jesus was hanging out with his family, he was chopping it up. He was making some jokes. Jesus understood what it meant to be human. And when we think about that, then we look at what it means to be a disciple differently because he knows how we're going to respond. He knows the challenges that we face. And the truth is, when we look at the the scope of Jesus' life, there was nothing in him that desired to suffer and to die like he did. Did you know that? Did you know he didn't desire that? Like, in his full humanity, there is nothing any of us would ever want to go through like he went through. If you were to skip forward from Luke 14 to Luke 22, we see that just before Jesus was arrested, he knew what was coming. He expressed through prayer that he didn't want to suffer and die. Jesus spoke those words. His desires were different than God's plan. But he said, Not my will, but yours be done. I actually think this is one of the best examples of what real discipleship looks like. It means taking our desires, what we would like to happen, and saying, Lord, this is what I want, but I know your plan's better. And Jesus knew in both his humanity and his divinity what the plan was, that it was better, but he still felt it. And the plan was that through him going to the cross without ever having sinned, the only person ever to do that, that he would become a sacrifice for all sins. That every person in humanity who would sin, they would now have an opportunity to be forgiven of that sin and to have it wiped away because Jesus suffered and died. And because he overcame sin and overcame death, his invitation to discipleship is an invitation to do the same. That when we follow Jesus, we aren't promised that we won't suffer. In fact, we're promised more that we will. But what we are promised is that on the other side of that suffering, there is good news. There's a way through it. So following Jesus doesn't always mean that our desires line up perfectly with God's will. So what happens when they don't? What happens when our desires come in conflict with God's will? Well, you have a choice, don't you? And this is where Jesus says, if you are going to follow me, count the cost. Count the cost. He gives two illustrations here. Uh, One is a building that goes uncompleted, verses 28 through 30. He says, hey, if anybody's going to go ahead and start making something, they make sure that they can finish it, right? I read this article this last week about this massive mansion that was being built down in Southern California. And they called this mansion The One. Pretty dramatic, right? It was being built and it was going to be, it was being built to be sold. And it was going to be sold when it was completed for $500 million dollars. That's a half a billion dollars. And in this mansion, there was multiple pools, there was bowling alleys, there was basketball courts, there's everything you can imagine, including a nightclub. Anybody ever wanted their own nightclub? Not me. It's too, sounds, I'm too old for that. It sounds tiring. Uh, 
$100 million into the development of this property, the developer ran out of money. He had a great vision, a plan, and he couldn't finish it out. On a more local level, maybe some of you notice if you drive up Sunset Avenue to church, there's some townhomes that have been being built for like three years. They're called Sunset Edge townhomes. Uh, probably a year and a half ago, I noticed nobody had been working on them for months. They were starting to look run down. At some point, I don't know the exact details, but that developer couldn't finish the job. Thankfully, somebody else has picked it up, and if anybody's looking for a townhome, I think they're going to be for sale soon. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. There is nothing worth celebrating when someone says they want to follow Jesus, then realizes they are more attracted to the idea of faith then they are living out the reality of faith. And this is what discipleship is. It's a desire to follow Jesus in the mundane. It's often more walking than running. It's simply being faithful to take the next step of obedience. My desires, Lord God, underneath your desires. And following Jesus in this way is really just a long obedience in the same direction. The second illustration that Jesus uses is similar to the first, essentially saying what kind of king would go to war knowing he is severely outmanned? Nobody. Nobody would enter into that war. They would negotiate peace before it ever got to that point. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, my, my boys and I did a backpacking trip. We started doing backpacking trips a few years ago when they were a little bit younger. And I remember the very first backpacking trip we ever done um, was just about two and a half miles. And our family had walked that far before. We liked to go on walks and around our neighborhood and, and short little hikes. But my boys had never done it with a, a backpack, carrying their own gear in. And it's different. Even just 20 pounds, you feel it. And I remember about 300 yards in, <laughs> they go, how far is this? <laughs> and I'm thinking, a lot farther. <laughs> a few weeks ago, we did our, our third backpacking trip, and we hiked uh, about eight miles with about a 2,000-foot elevation gain. And I told them ahead of time, the first trip I didn't tell them how far it was, <laughs> but I told them it's about eight miles. We're going to stop for lunch and it, the, fa the back half of it's going to be pretty much straight uphill. And you're carrying more now. I'm not carrying all your stuff anymore. <laughs> so they knew, they knew it was going to be a, a, a little bit harder and a little bit longer destination. What they also knew is halfway into that trip, they couldn't change their mind. I was not going to turn around and drive them home. We're going all the way. And they did it. I was so sore. I'm just going to be honest. 16 miles in two days when we came back. But following Jesus is like this. It's not a small commitment. Discipleship isn't a stop and start and, well, I feel like it this Sunday, but I don't feel like it next Sunday kind of thing. It's an intentional, faithful, step-by-step -step journey where we have in mind our destination the entire time. And we trust in the meantime that Jesus is going to provide the strength for us to live obediently and to act redemptively. Because that's why Jesus wants disciples. He wants a multiplication of transformation for this world. Jesus said to his disciples before he left, I am going to leave, but you are going to do greater things than me. When I read that as a kid, I went, whoa, if he walked on water, I'm going to walk on nothing. <laughs> That's not what Jesus meant. 
What Jesus meant is greater as far as scope, as far as impact. And it's been true. Jesus' primary ministry was in a very small geographic area. Eventually, one of his disciples named Thomas would travel from Jerusalem all the way to India to spread the gospel. The people of God have fulfilled the promises of Jesus. Why? Because they were disciples. Because they were willing to submit their lives to Jesus' life. This last illustration of discipleship brings us back to the large crowds. To the over 225 million Americans who claim Christ. Jesus says this. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, for you science folks in the room, can salt lose its saltiness? No. Salt can't lose its saltiness. It's actually one of the more, more stable um, compounds that's found in our world today. So salt can't lose its saltiness. So this, again, is an illustration that Jesus used, similar to hating brother, father, mother. So if it can't lose its saltiness, then what does that mean? If you were to put salt on your food, and I like salt on my food, and it didn't taste salty, there's two possibilities. The first one is, it's not actually salt. Anybody ever done that before? Somebody put sugar in the salt shaker. Ah! (laughs) The second possibility is that it is salt. It is salt. But it's mixed with a lot of stuff that isn't salt. So much so to the point that it doesn't taste salty. And you're going to just chuck that stuff. In our current day, there are a lot of people who claim Jesus, but have so many other things mixed in with their faith that Jesus is just one of many influences in their life. They're not salty. They're not Christians. But when we follow Jesus, what he wants us to be is all in. This means that when, for us to be salty Christians means When following Jesus comes into conflict with the values of our culture, we follow Jesus. This means that when following Jesus comes into conflict with my desires, which if I'm honest are often influenced by the culture, man, I'm going to follow Jesus instead. This means that when following Jesus costs me something, relationally, financially, positionally, man, it's worth every penny. At some point, an apprentice is able to do the same things as their teacher. I want you to know this morning, church, that's what Jesus is calling you to. I don't care if you're in middle school or if you're 85, 90 years old. When Jesus spoke these words, he had you and me in mind. And I'm not saying you have to be a pastor or a missionary, you have to just be faithful. You have to be oriented to what he's calling you to be. And this is the story of the church. To this day, true disciples of Jesus have helped to heal millions of people through the establishment of hospitals. They've fed millions more. They've taken care of orphans and widows. They've welcomed refugees. And they've shared the culture-transforming news about Jesus, who died so that we could be free and from the power of so we could be free from the power of sin and death and so that we could live 
a transformed life. And the disciples of Jesus, they are everywhere. They are frontline healthcare workers. They are teachers and grocery store checkers. They are parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. Jesus' disciples are retirees and wealthy business owners. They are artists and philosophers, authors and filmmakers. The diversity of the world is reflected in those who follow Jesus. And no matter what their station in life is, we are all brought together by the amazing grace of Jesus that was poured out in a demonstration of love and restoration and transformation on the cross. So we follow Jesus today not out of guilt or coercion, but out of revelation that Jesus has made this known to us. And we have no excuse. And we don't have to, to think that we have to have it all together. Because what? Man, Jesus walks with us in the messiness of our lives. And he loves us. He doesn't expect perfection. He just wants relationship. And God is real. He showed his love for me through Jesus and through his grace he has offered me a life worth living. So what do you think, church? Are we ready to orient our lives around Jesus? Are we ready to be a church of disciples? Are we willing to follow in his footsteps? Are we willing to submit our desires to God's will because we trust that his will is the best? That's the question we have to ask. And I have to ask it every morning. When I get up in the morning, I look at myself in the face. I think of all the burdens, all the cares, all the imperfections, all the weights that is on me. And after that day, say, but I belong to Jesus. And he has made a promise to me that he will keep because he always keeps his promises. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be loved. And I have to orient my life to that love. So would you stand with me this morning? And I want to ask if you, are, if you want to be renewed in this discipleship, that you would just agree with me in prayer. And if, I want to ask if you have never made the decision to follow Jesus. He's more about you following him in the day-to-day than he is about you praying a prayer one time. So if this is it, if you're ready to take the first step for Jesus, may today be that day today. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be who you've called us to be. We want to be a church that is oriented around your gospel, around your good news. We want to be a people that are transformed not by knowledge, but by revelation. And so, Jesus, may we not be the 70% that are part of the large crowd. May we be counted in the few, Lord, that are part of the faithful. Lord, would you call us, and, and would you call us in our current situation to just take one step of obedience, to be oriented around your love and your life. Father, show us where we have placed our desires above your will, and lovingly, like you always do, bring us under your will, Lord. Point us in your direction. So, Father, we ask that this church, Sunset Community Church, would be known by its followership of you, and by nothing more than that, Jesus. In your name we pray. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, 
visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.